This is probably the hardest of all the parables to understand. If you've ever read this passage before, I'm pretty sure you might have left saying, I have no idea what that means. Um, it's really bizarre, and it's, and it's hard. And part of the reason that it's so hard and bizarre for us is that, um, that we're Westerners, and I've mentioned this several times this semester, but we have a hard time seeing the message of this passage because it is given in a highly culturalized Middle Eastern context, um, and we have trouble seeing in, into what's going on there. So, thankfully, there have been lots of scholars and people who, people who have helped us and have worked toward that end. So, um, hopefully, by the end of the night, it's a little less hazy. Um, but before we read it, even, let me give you... Uh, there's three different kind of people in this parable. Let me tell you who they are, and I think it will help us understand, even as we read it, um, even as we get going. You'll see up there in the first verse, it says there was a rich man. Okay, there's a rich man. Now, what we will know about this rich man throughout this passage is that he is the owner of some sort of estate. He has some, he's a rich man. He has a lot of property. And we know that because later on he has, it says that he has debtors who would be more like renters. And they would rent land from him and they would pay him at harvest time. Once the harvest came in, the crops came in, that's how they would pay him for renting the land from him. So there's a rich man. Um, there's also a manager. Okay, it says that in the first verse also. There's a manager. This guy would be like the CEO of the state. He would be the controller, the operator, kind of the everyday affairs. Right? The owners, if you've ever known someone who owns a business, they kind of, uh, if everything's in place, they kick back and they kind of like spend money and stuff like that. But the manager is the person who's on the ground. He's doing a lot of the work. And that's what this guy would be. He would be negotiating contracts between those renters and the owner. He would be kind of managing the day-to-day affairs of the estate. And, um, and yeah, so then thirdly, you have the debtors. You have the people who would rent the land and they would farm it. And then uh, upon harvest time, when they had received their crops, they would turn around to the owner and pay him in crops. Okay? So this is fairly common in that, uh, in that context, but we're far removed from them. Uh, from them, so it helps us. So let's uh, turn our attention now. Let's read this passage. It's only eight verses long, um, but let's read it and then we'll begin to talk about. It. This is uh, this is God's holy word. Uh, and he, this is Jesus, also said to the disciples, "There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you?'" Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are uh, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Let me pray real quick before we look at this. Father, I pray that you would um, come to us now and be with us, that you would uh, send your spirit to open our hearts and our, our, our minds, and our, uh, that we might understand uh, what it is that you have for us out of this passage. 
And I pray that in so doing, as we see the gospel hidden in this passage, that we would um, throw ourselves onto you and onto your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's two words that I want us to understand. Uh, I would love for you to understand in general, but really uh, they're very applicable to this passage tonight. And actually, if you get these two words, it'll go a long way toward your understanding of kind of the entire Christian message, the gospel, and a lot of kind of the movement of Scripture and what's going on. Um, and the first word is, is the word justice. Okay, now I'm going to give very simple definitions for these. Different people would want to nuance them and do lots of other stuff. These are very simple definitions, and I know that. But um, I'm kind of holding them in that regard for the purpose of what we're doing. So justice, and I'm going to define that by simply saying fairness or equity, right? Um, that's the sense of that one gets what one deserves, okay? That one gets what one deserves. And the second word that I want us to see is, um, is mercy, okay? And by mercy, I mean not getting what one deserves. You now, we usually think about that uh, with regard to the negative, Justice is, you know, Lady Justice sits outside every federal courthouse um, and a lot of state courthouses and different stuff. And she, you know, is, um, I'm forgetting exactly what she looks like, it's going blank. But she's sitting out there saying that there is a standard and that justice means that, that all is fair. That there is no one who comes um, under this standard and is, is judged inequitably. Right? There's this idea of fairness. Mer- uh, uh, mercy has this idea that that we've done something negative, like there's something that we've done wrong, and that someone, the standard bearer or whatever that may be, doesn't give us what our wrongdoing deserves. Um, there's a campus minister down at Texas A&M with RUF, and he was telling me this story. He apparently, um, when he was in seminary, his very first year of seminary, he really got convicted about something that he had done in college. It was actually really bad. Um, when he was an undergrad at Delta State University, uh, he, uh, he broke into a building and stole tests for two of his classes. Um, and he used these tests to cheat on his exams that were coming up, and he, he carried it out. I mean, he did it. He cheated for these two different classes. He did it on multiple occasions. And so when he was a first year in seminary, he, he finally just couldn't take it anymore. It was weighing on his conscience. And he called the dean of arts and sciences of his college and told him what happened. Now, what was going on was he knew that when he called that dean, that the dean could have and, and rightfully would have been just to revoke his degree. I mean, he cheated. He could have effectively reset Ben's academic career. The guy didn't do that, though. Um, turns out the guy was actually a Christian. He thanked Ben for calling and said, man, that's really bold of you. It's really brave of you. Um, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And Ben was floored by that because he could have had his academic career reset. He actually could have been, like, arrested, if you think about it, for breaking into the buildings and all this stuff. But he received mercy. He didn't get what he deserved um, from that dean. My hope for what we're going to look at tonight is that by more thoroughly trying to understand some of the cultural stuff going on, that we will see that this passage has a man who was messed up and who faced a crisis that was coming. But he experienced a boss who was full of mercy. And once he had experienced that, he bet everything on it. 
He bet everything on his father's mercy. So let's walk through this and see, uh, and see what happens so that we can better understand it, hopefully. Um, in verse 1, the problem is introduced. And it simply says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now look, in all fairness, we don't know what this man did. We don't know what wasting his possessions meant. We don't know if he was stealing or if he was like taking something under the table um, on a contract. We just don't know. But it really doesn't matter. What we do know is that um, he had done something wrong, and the rich man, the owner of the estate, found out about it. So this guy is in a a situation. He's messed up, and he's in a situation. But verse 2 then kind of goes on and says, As anybody would, the rich man or the owner called him and said to him, and says, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Okay, now there's several things going on in this passage that we have to notice. The first thing is when he says, what is this that I hear about you? When he says, I hear, the word that's used there is this this kind of ongoing sense of hear. The the, the boss is saying, what is this that I have been hearing about you and am still hearing about you? That there's something that this manager's been doing in the past and it's carrying on in the present. He's been doing it a while. And the boss finally calls him to account and says, what is this I've been hearing about you? And in response to that question, the manager says nothing. He doesn't say anything. Now, we would normally read it, and we just breeze right past that. No big deal. But the people in the Middle East who read this passage and this parable, they're shocked by that. They're saying, well, why? Like, he doesn't say anything. That's a big deal. So he sits there in silence. And what they suspect is that this is what's happening. But he doesn't really want to give his... He doesn't know what his boss knows. His boss kind of does the open-ended thing like, Hey, what am I hearing about you? And he doesn't give his boss any rope with which to hang him. He doesn't want to say anything his boss may not already know. And so uh, think about if you're, if you're a kid. Maybe it's happened in your childhood. Um, maybe I was just dumb enough. I certainly was dumb enough to let it happen in mine. Um, my parents could come to me and say... Brent, uh, we heard what you did. Now, in every effort to want to justify myself and, and blame shift and all over the place, I'd lunch and say, no, 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 no. I hit him or he hit me, but I hit him only after he came at me with a bat and he hit me. And then, but, before, but I would leave out the parts where I did stuff wrong. See, my parents didn't know any of that stuff until I started talking. And so this guy, imaginably so, doesn't know what his boss knows. His boss says, hey, what's this I'm hearing about you? And he doesn't say anything. He sits there in silence. Okay, but there's more. The master must be certain that whatever this guy's done, he must be certain of what he's done. Because he doesn't just go and inquire of him, kind of leave, and the parable doesn't end there. Hey, what's this I'm hearing about you? All right, let's close in prayer. No, um, he looks at him and says, all right, well, turn in the account of management. Like, essentially, you're fired, turn in the books. So the master's sure that what this guy's done is wrong. He, and he's certain of it. He um, was trying to draw it out of him. The guy doesn't say anything, but he says, well, you're fired. And once again, to this, the manager says nothing. He's silent. And this is very significant. Because if, think about it. If you have been fired from a job unjustly, whether someone has set you up or um, the reason that a boss has fired you is, is, a, is just not true, it's a wrong reason. If that's what's, what's happening, then you're going to argue that. You're going to fight that. You're going to say, no, 
what are you doing? It's wrong. You've got this all mixed up. And you start to lay out your case. But this man just says nothing. Again, he sits there and takes it. He's been fired and he accepts what has happened to him. And by saying nothing, he's affirming a few things for us. The first thing he's affirming is he's, he's owning guilt. He's saying, I can't get out of this. He knows what I've done. I'm guilty. Okay, secondly, he just, he's saying, my master knows that I'm guilty. That's why he fired me. Um, again, I can't get out of this. But then he notices something um, a little more. As you're thinking through this, he notices that his master has expected, you know, I mean, as any master would, as any boss would, he expects you to act a certain way, and then when you don't act that way, there's punishment. So the master would expect obedience, and when there's not obedience, when there's disobedience, that brings justice or judgment. Okay? And then he, sitting there under the weight of that, he thinks, excuses aren't going to help me. I'm guilty. He knows I'm guilty. There's, like, that would be stupid at this point. That would be a waste of air. But finally, there's one more thing. And this is actually, this is a big one. He looks up and realizes that he's been fired, yes. That his master is a man who expects obedience. He's disobeyed, and so he's been fired. But in that time, all sorts of documents show that this man could have been thrown into court. He could have been taken to court and thrown into jail for what he had done, for any sort of dishonesty or transgression of the master. But he's not. And in addition to that, he could have been taken out into the public square near the gates of the city where all the business and where all the, the landowners and all that, where they met. He could have been taken there and kind of publicly put on display. And he could have been humiliated and mocked and, and ridiculed and all this stuff. But that doesn't happen either. So in one sense, justice is shown. And that the man loses his job. But in, in another very real sense, this manager who has been dishonest, has done something, has been shown tremendous mercy. That there is both justice, but there's also mercy at work here. So this man knows at least these two things about his master. You see him in number three and number five. The first one is my master expects obedience, and disobedience brings justice or judgment. And the second thing is that my master is merciful. That he is a master of mercy. And he has shown him that. Okay, down in verse three then, we're going to keep kind of going along. Um, the manager is contemplating this crisis that he's in. He says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? The master is firing me. What shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Okay, I'm not strong enough to dig. Let's think about that. Um, an educated man in authority, such as, I mean, this manager's got a good job. It's like a CEO type position in his day. He would, like, it would be so far beneath him to go out and dig. And to go dig ditches or just work in the field or whatever. But he doesn't complain that it's beneath him. He simply says, physically, I can't do it. I can't do it. And what about the begging? Well, again, begging was, it was a way to make money back then. It was frowned upon and you're kind of the lower rung of society. And it was a day-to-day -day thing. Right? Just, every meal is kind of what you're out there working for. And he says, he's too ashamed to do that. He doesn't want to do it. This man is, he's hoping, the crisis is, he, has, he wants to stay in this village. He wants to keep working. He's hoping he can find some sort of work that's ongoing to remain, to keep his status and position in society. What can he do? Well, um, 
The problem is that once the word gets out that he's been fired, like once the word gets out that he's been dishonest, that he hasn't taken care of the master's property, nobody's going to hire him. Nobody. I've mentioned almost every week now that that culture was a very communal culture, very community-based, and the word would travel so fast. And once it comes out that he's been, that he's been dishonest, no one's going to hire him. So he has to create a situation that will change this coming devastating public image. Okay? And so in verses 4 through 7, we see what happens. And I'm not going to read them all. But this man's solution uh, and his plan as to what he's going to do is coming into picture and is unfolding. Again, the key to this situation is to remember that no one knows that he's fired. And he realizes that if there's going to be any escape from digging or begging or some other kind of lower baseline job, then he has to do something now before word gets out, before he officially hands all the books over and he has his desk cleaned out. He realizes he's got to act quickly. Okay. Um, There's two reasons that we know that he's still in power once this plan starts unfolding. And we see it in this. In verse 5, it says that he goes out and he summons the debtors. This is really important because what that means is that um, when you summon somebody, you send like a lesser servant out. So he would be sending one of the master servants out to go get the the, the land renters and the farmers. Now, if he had already been fired and the servants would have known about that, they would have been like, dude, who are you? Like, you've just been fired. We're not listening to you. But they do it. He summons them and he brings the landowners into him. Okay, so that's the first reason why we know that the word has not gotten out that he's been fired yet. But the second thing that happens and that we see in verse 5 also is that when he sends them out and he, uh, when, the, when he visits with these debtors and renters, he asks them and says, how much do you owe my master?" He is speaking as if he hasn't been fired. Okay? So if you remember what I said at the beginning, the contracts have been signed. They're they're signed before uh, the planting even happens. They drop the contracts and say, okay, upon harvest, you'll give me this much. Okay, so they've been signed. And what he's doing is he's calling these people in one by one so they can confer with each other. And listen to what he says. Right? He looks at the first guy and says, hey, look, how much do you owe? Well, I owe 100, or how much, how much does your rent? 100 measures of oil. And he says to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. So there's a sense of urgency. And then he looks at the second person. And though it doesn't, it doesn't pick up in our English versions, in Greek what it says is, and you, how much do you? What about you? How much do you owe? He says, uh, 100. He says, all right, write 80. This dude's just like reeling and dealing, trying to make the deal before it all falls in upon him. Okay? It's crazy. (laughs) It's brilliant, really. Um, But the renters do not know he's been fired. And if they knew that he had been fired, and they would be kind of dealing with this guy, um, you know, who was a fired man and would be acting dishonestly on behalf of his manager, then their whole reputation and their business would be at stake because they rented land from this guy. So they absolutely don't know that he's been fired. And this is so huge that we have to remember. So, why would the manager do this? I mean, good grief. He's just been fired. Like, why is he making the situation even more ridiculous? And it is. It's getting more and more ridiculous. Why would he do this? Well, it says in there that, um, that he wants to be able to move. Uh, people may receive me into their houses. 
He doesn't want to be defamed in this culture. He doesn't want to be, um, have his credibility and his status lost. He wants to be seen as the man that he isn't. <laughs> and it also says that when he goes out and starts renegotiating these contracts, that the renters would be loving this man. Right? Imagine that it's just kind of any old ordinary year. And you're out of college and you're out working a job. And there's somebody that, a boss or somebody that comes to you, and it's just, you know, it's like July or August, and they say, hey, um, you're going to get a 50% bonus right now. You're going to freak out. That's amazing. That's awesome. Like, who are you? And you'd jump up and kiss them. Probably not. But, uh, I mean, you'd be so excited about the fact that you just got $25,000, $50,000 just dropped on you like that for no reason. And that's exactly what happened. They had effectually gotten a bonus in this moment. Now, what happens through this is it leaves the rich man or the owner in a predicament. He's in quite a situation here, and um, he has a decision to make. Because he knows full well, once this kind of start, words start traveling to him that, like, you know, the guy's gone out and cut their rents, he knows full well that out in the village... That people are celebrating. Everybody's just gotten a bonus. Like, it's, this is a big deal, and they're excited, and they're out there partying. And he knows that if he goes out there um, and, and tries to, like, kill the party, right? Kind of drops the, uh, the, hey, look, yeah. Uh, the guy who came and talked to you, you know, uh, manager guy, he'd been fired. And the bonus that you think you just got, actually, we're going to go ahead and take that back. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, the people in the village would hate him. <laughs> like, he at that point would become the enemy. It's almost like, well, I don't care about this guy. Dude, you're a jerk. Why aren't you giving us a bonus? You're rich. What's the deal? And so he is in this tension of, well, do I do that? Do I go out and become really uh, unpopular? You think, have you all ever seen um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? It's a really old movie. It's like the classic Christmas movie. I've got it memorized. Actually, my brothers and I, used to, we used to put Christmas lights on our house like that, literally, like up and down the roof. It was so ghetto, and it was awesome. And we had to get a new roof because of it. But anyway, um, in Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase is so excited. In the beginning, he's dreaming about this huge Christmas bonus that he's about to get. And he's dreaming about this swimming pool and all that. And, um, you know, he shows the people at work, like the brochure of the swimming pool he's about to build and all that stuff. In the whole movie, the premise is around that that doesn't happen, right? And it doesn't materialize, and instead, his boss decided to get them a membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. And so the whole end of the movie is this fiasco with him trying to go out and hunt down the boss um, to, to wring his neck for, for not giving him the big Christmas bonus. Well, that would be this owner's one, that would be one option. Make everyone mad, everyone wants to come uh, get you for giving them Jelly of the Month. Or the second option is this, that he keeps silent and he absorbs the cost of that himself. That he accepts the praise that is being showered on him in the village and that he allows this clever manager to ride high on, the, on his prowess, on his enthusiasm of what he's just done. So those are his two options. He goes out and spoils the party or he absorbs the cost of what's just happened. Verse 8, the master commanded the dishonest manager, commend, sorry, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The master reflects upon what's just happened. He turns to the manager and says this, you're a very wise man. 
You're a very wise man. That's what the word shrewdness means. It's just a different translation of the word wisdom. The master commends and praises this man for his wisdom, which is a very loaded word that means um, something more like skillfulness, skillfulness or cleverness in, in self-preservation, in doing whatever he had to do to make it work. And in that culture, in that society, any time you could like stick it to the man, it was even better. So like here's this lower rung guy or guy who's below the master, and he kind of sticks it to the man. So everyone would have been said, that's awesome, that's awesome. And it makes us really nervous because we're just like, no, but like he did all this wrong stuff. But that's because that we're in a different culture than that. But this man, he was a hero. He was a local hero for what had just happened. But he had faced a crisis, you see. He was in this crisis of, what do I do? I can't dig. I don't want to do the day-to-day thing. Who would? And he's very sensitive that he doesn't have a whole lot of options. That once word gets out that, that he's been fired for dishonesty, he's essentially going to have no good options. And the master is commending him because of this. In the midst of that hopelessness of thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do, he remembers and is aware of one source of salvation. He is aware of one source of mercy, of hope, and it is the generosity of his master. Because he thought back. He said, you know what, my master, whenever he could have and and should have scolded me and, and thrown me in jail, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. So this man gets to thinking. Knowing his master's mercy, he puts everything on it. He throws his whole life behind him and says, I'm going to bet it all on my my master's mercy. I'm going to bet it all on that. If he's playing poker, he just went all in on the fact that his master is a merciful man and is not going to give him what he deserves in this scenario. So the master praises him not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness and his wisdom. Okay, we have to catch that. He's not approving of his dishonesty. He's, he's approving of his wisdom. And the fact that he cast himself on his mercy. And when the master keeps silent, he absorbs the cost of this man's, uh, of the man's dishonesty and of his failure and then of his subsequent plan. The master absorbs the cost of the whole thing. Okay, so that's the parable. Let's talk about this for just a few minutes before we end. If, we're, if you're new to a setting like this, maybe if you're not a Christian or you're still kind of checking it out, you're wondering what Christianity is about, or maybe you've been in the church for a long time, um, but you don't really know about why and how we go from like Jesus being a good storyteller in the parables, because this is a kind of a cool story and there are a lot of other cool stories we've been talking about. Like, how do we make a transition from Jesus the storyteller to, like, this bloody mess that's hanging on a cross? Like, that's kind of an abrupt, uh, <laughs> abrupt sequence of events. What happened? Why, why is this happening? What's, what's behind this all? Well, in, um, and then actually beyond that, then Christians actually like to sing about the bloody mess on the cross, right? And we're like... Praise the blood, and we talk about how the blood covers us, and it's kind of weird, right? And a lot of non-Christians will say, yeah, that's really weird. Like when y'all start talking about blood and Jesus being bloody and you're excited about that, it's kind of weird. Well, 
Let's talk about it for a second. How we go from parables to perdition, to this picture of, of torture and, and, and damnation on a cross. What happens along that way? Well, historic Christianity says that God is both is both just and merciful. That God is both just and merciful. And so in that both of these things meet at the cross of Jesus. Okay, let's talk about how, how this happens. See, God's justice is related to his goodness. And he himself is the very standard of goodness. He is the standard of goodness. And so, because of that, he can rightly judge when someone has not lived up to that standard. He has an infallible judgment on mankind's life. On whether or not you have lived up to that standard. Now, that's both wonderful and very scary. It's wonderful because what this means is if if God is just, and God's justice is going to be played out in time and space at some point in history, and what that means, the reason that's wonderful is what it means is that, that all of the evil that happens in our world today, particularly the things that we think about that go unpunished, Um, All of the hate crimes and all of the child abuse and all of the genocide, all of these things that never are brought to justice through a court system or through some sense of equitable treatment, that all of that stuff one day will be dealt with. That God, nothing escapes his, his system, nothing escapes his purview and his sight, and he will judge everybody for what they've done. That's good. That is a good thing. Because that means for some of you that the people who have, have done bad things to you and they've kind of gotten away with it and it torments you and you're haunted by that, that means that God is going to hold those people accountable for what they've done. And that's good. That should be of comfort to you that God cares. God cares about the suffering and the injustice in this world. But the reason that that's scary is that God cares. And is that not only like is kind of evil and sin just a problem out in the world and in third world countries and stuff like that, but evil and, and sin is a problem in here. And it's a problem with you inside of, of your being, in your mind, in your heart. And it's scary to think that one day I'm going to stand before God and he's going to judge me. He has the right standard of judgment. He's got the right measuring stick and he's going to say, look, why did you do all of this? Look at your life. What have you done? you're going to be confronted with that picture of justice. And this should give even the sweetest of us in here pause. Because I promise your sweetness, compared to the people around you, is not going to be sweet before God when He, when he starts calling us to, to judgment for our lives. So it's wonderful and it's scary, and that's the nature of God's justice. But if God is only just, then that's terrible news. Then that's awful news. Um, two, three weeks ago, we, on my day off, we took the, our girls, Sarah and I took our girls out to Porter. And we, they have like this big pumpkin patch out there and stuff. And we went and picked up pumpkins and spent a ridiculous amount of money on pumpkins. Um, and peach barbecue sauce and peach other, anyway. Um, but on the way home, I didn't know the speed limit. I got pulled over for going 49 out of 35. 
And um, I got a ticket, and they said, well, you need to come to this court date. I got summoned. Hey, there's that word. I got summoned to go to the court. And so yesterday, I'm in the city of Porter. I thought it was going to be in, like, five people. There were about 50 people in there. And um, this woman walks out. who was the presiding judge for the day. I've never been to anything like this. But here's what happened. The lady sat at the, at the front. This was terrifying. She sat at the front, and she started going down through the list. She was like, uh, Jenny Adair, you are being brought up on charges of... And she, like, listed them out. I'm thinking, that's terrible. Like, I don't know why it's just a speeding ticket, but what happens when, like, the person who's really done something weird or wrong, like, they say that out loud, that's awful. That's actually a picture of justice. There has been a law that's been broken, and God is going to hold us accountable. And it's going to be worse than Porter. <laughs> right? It's going to be worse than going 49 and 35. Because we'll stand before the God of right measurement. And he's going to call out our charges. But thankfully, God's not just just. He's merciful. God is also merciful. And because he is the standard of goodness, he knows perfectly well exactly how we fail. And he knows the pile of, of transgression that we have against that standard. And in the midst of that, he offers mankind a way out. He offers mankind mercy in a way to not get what we deserve. Why does he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves us. He was not content to let humanity just go down the drain. He wanted to redeem it. He wanted to save people. He wanted a people that would love him. And so he loved us and he entered the story and pursued us. Now, why? how does he do this? Why? is because he loves us. How does he do it? He enters the story. And he does this by taking on our flesh in the person of Jesus. And he does this so that Jesus can absorb the cost of your sin. So that Jesus can absorb the cost of your transgression. Now, how does Jesus do that? When we think about the cross, on the cross, Jesus hangs there as this bloody, beaten, humiliated mess of a person. And friends, that is a picture of the justice of God poured out on mankind. That that is what your and my sin deserves, right? God's standard up here, our sin is wherever else. Jesus on the cross is a picture of what sin brings before God. It brings death. And in that moment, when Christ dies on the cross, God offers mercy. He says this, if you will believe that, if you will believe that Jesus was the way that I absorbed your cost, then I will be merciful to you. Then I will give you mercy. You will not get what your transgression deserves. that's the gospel. That's at the heart of the Christian story, the Christian message, is that God looks out on a people who have wronged him and who have gone the other way and said, I'm going to give you a way out. I'm going to offer you mercy, just as this owner offered his manager mercy and didn't make him pay for what he deserved. God, through Jesus on the cross, says, I'm going to offer that to you. Friends, when you realize that you've been treated and offered that by the God of the universe, and when that begins to resonate in your heart, then it frees you up to move out into the world in relationships with people and to not hold them to justice. 
when they wrong you, when someone crosses you or does something evil to you or wrong to you, then you have a basis for forgiveness. You begin to think, you know what? I don't have to make them pay for what they've just done to me because my story is about a God who didn't make me pay. And so rather than going out into the world demanding justice anytime someone crosses you, use... I was about to cuss. Uh, don't. You don't have to do that. You see what's in my heart, right? I really get angry at things. The gospel frees us up to be merciful toward others. And when that happens, when we as a people, when Christians begin to move out into the world with this, with this baseline of mercy, things around us begin to change. We begin to work subversively in our culture because our culture is one that either ignores or tends to be flippant about justice. And when mercy washes over, when mercy begins to show up on the scene, people will change in the same way that you will change when you begin to trust in Jesus and the mercy that's offered in Him. So that's good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray.